Hello, and welcome to our podcast series on the Duty to Consult Doctrine, brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, your hub for constitutional research and public legal education in Canada. My name is Liz England, here in Edmonton, Alberta, with my colleagues Tasha DeBlanco and Zachary G. To open this podcast, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the land that we are broadcasting from. If you're listening from elsewhere in Canada or from further afield, I encourage you to join me and take a moment to reflect upon the land wherever you are. The Centre for Constitutional Studies is located at the University of Alberta in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. The Centre acknowledges and honours the ancestors, traditions, and the spirit that first drew Indigenous peoples, the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Salto, Inuit, and then settlers to this gathering place. The Centre, the University, and I enjoy the benefits of treaty, and the Centre recognizes that land acknowledgement is only a very small step in recognizing and upholding treaty. The Crown's constitutional obligations towards Indigenous peoples includes the duty to consult, which is the topic of this podcast series. But what exactly does this obligation mean? In this four-part series, we'll talk to legal experts about what the duty to consult entails, where it comes from, what it means to Indigenous peoples and other stakeholders in Canada, and how it might evolve in the future. In this first episode, we start the conversation with Professor Eric Adams, who will walk us through the basics. In this first conversation, we will introduce the duty to consult doctrine and establish the building blocks that will guide us through the rest of the podcast series. Today, we will explore the doctrine's background and purpose, then parse out the important pieces of the law to understand what it actually means. And here today to help us through the conversation is Professor Eric Adams. Professor Adams is Vice Dean and Professor at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. He teaches first-year constitutional law, which includes a section on Aboriginal and treaty rights. Professor Adams' work focuses on constitutional law, legal history, and especially the history of rights, and labour and employment law. He has won many awards for his teaching and research, and his work has been cited many times by the Supreme Court of Canada. Professor Adams, it's great to see you again. Thank you for joining us. What an introduction. I'm uh, so happy to be here from uh, Treaty 6 territory where I'm being interviewed today and really it's my pleasure. Great, so let's start off the conversation by putting the duty to consult doctrine into context. So where does the duty to consult come from? Why does it exist? Well, its history starts in a different story entirely. And maybe I'll just mention that little bit of a different uh, story as part of our background, which is that Section 35 of the Constitution Act protects, or rather to use the language of Section 35, it recognizes and affirms 
Aboriginal and treaty rights. And in one of the first cases about this set of rights, the court considered what a government might do as part of justifying its infringements of Aboriginal rights. And they described some of the ways that a government might justify those infringements. Number one, they might have a, they might have to uh, describe what is their rationale, what was the reason for infringing the rights. But one of the things that the court mentioned was consultation with the Indigenous rights holders. They asked, you know, would it be reasonable to have the government consult with or discuss with the people whose rights were being interfered with, to consult with them in order to justify why they were infringing that right. And that consultation would be something that the court might look at. Did the consultation exist? Um, what did it consist of in order to determine whether or not a right had been justifiably infringed? And so in a case called Sparrow from 1990, the court first introduces this idea that in some contexts, it's a good idea for the government to consult or discuss with Indigenous peoples concerning their rights to land or to activities upon the land. Now, that's my backstory, because we're going to flash forward um, to a case called Haida Nation. Um, I think it's from 2004. And in Haida Nation, it introduced an interesting and, and, and novel set of facts, which was the BC government was selling timber licenses to land for logging purposes. And the Haida people claimed that they had Aboriginal title or rights to that land. And so the Haida Nation said to the government, how can you be selling the licenses to this land that we claim title to? And the government responded, well, you haven't proven that you have these rights. You're just claiming that you have rights to this land. And the process of proving that you have Aboriginal title, unextinguished Aboriginal title exclusively to these lands is a long, drawn-out, complicated process, requires uh, an immense amount of proof, probably years of litigation. None of that has been done. So what we all, we, the only thing from the government's perspective that existed was a claim to land. And the government said, that's not worth very much. You have claimed that land, but you have no right to that land. And so we're going to keep selling these tree licenses until such time as you prove that you have title. And so the Haida took the BC government all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada on the basis that, no, you couldn't simply sell those trees where we had a claimed right to land, even if it was unproven. And so that was the uh, dilemma that, that the, the Supreme Court faced in, in the Haida Nation case. And what did the court come up with? Well, they came up with what we now call the duty to consult. And they lifted out of that idea that they had originally discussed in the Sparrow case about infringing on rights, and they said, well, this idea from Sparrow can actually do some work in this novel 
uh, fact scenario where we have a claimed but unproven right to land or to fish or to hunt, some kind of claimed right to land or to do something on that land, and where the government is going to be potentially interfering with the land or with the rights upon that land, how do you solve that dilemma where you've got the government wants to do something in that land, it might have an impact on a right, but we don't even know if that right exists or not because it hasn't been proven through the judicial process. Again, the Haida people never doubted their own sense of rights, so they would say that our own laws tell us that we have a right, but it's unproven to the extent that the Canadian legal system has not yet discovered or found or recognized this particular right. So the Supreme Court says, well, the way through this is to impose on the government a duty to consult with the Haida Nation prior to doing anything that would have a negative impact on their rights. And that raised then a whole host of other questions, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, which is, okay, well, what does that consultation mean and who carries it out and how long does it have to be for and what if nobody disagrees? But that's where the concept comes from. The duty to consult was lifted out of the Sparrow case and placed in Haida Nation into a new fact scenario where rights have been claimed but not yet proven and where a government is... Uh, about to embark on some activity that might have a negative impact on those rights. So you you mentioned that that the duty to consult has a general purpose to recognize and respect Aboriginal rights, but are there any foundational constitutional principles that underlie this doctrine? Yes, and the court did that analysis in that Haida Nation case. And so the court made clear that the duty to consult did not arise because of the rights in Section 35. The duty to consult arises from a different but still constitutional obligation, which they rooted in something that they called the honor of the crown. The honor of the crown was a phrase that has cropped up in a handful of cases through Canadian legal history. You can spot it here and there, and you can sometimes see versions of it in some cases dealing with Indigenous peoples um, dating back even to the, to the early 20th century. But after 1982, when the Section 35 was, was created, the court began to talk in certain cases about what duties lay on the government, what responsibilities lay on provincial and federal governments. And eventually they settled on this phrase as describing the obligations that the Crown has towards Indigenous peoples, and it's one rooted in honor. And that honor is premised on the relationship that has always existed from contact to the present, in which effectively newcomers arrived into areas of land with sovereign peoples that were self-governing with language and law and, and culture and nationhood. And those newcomers claimed sovereignty 
not initially, but eventually over those lands. That dynamic, the meeting of these two sovereignties, effectively created a duty of honor on the part of the crown, having asserted sovereignty over land that was held and governed by others. And so now let's think about that fact scenario in Haida Nation, where the government says, hey, Haida, you say you have title to these lands, but you haven't proven it yet. And until you prove that you have those lands, we're going to feel that we have every responsibility and right to sell those uh, licenses to the, to the trees on that land um, for the benefit of, of other British Columbians. And the court says, well, that's really, really honorable in the face of a claim to rights in that land. It's not simply honorable to, to, to close your ears and close your eyes and say, I'm not listening to you until you come at us with a proven title. That's not honorable treatment because you know, Crown, that that is a legitimate title claim to lands. And you know that selling trees on those lands is going to have a negative impact on those rights. You can't take a formalistic, dare I say, lawyer's attitude that says, I'm not doing anything until I see a stamped piece of paper from a court of law telling me that you have those, you have that title. We have, we have nothing to say to you until we see that document. Is that honorable? Supreme Court of Canada says it just isn't. You've got to take Indigenous peoples and their rights claims seriously and you have to deal with it honorably from the time that the claim is made until you, uh, as the government, contemplate some activity that's going to have a negative impact on their rights. And that's rooted, the court said, in your duty of honorable conduct. All right. With that rich context in mind, let's shift to the legal doctrine itself. What is the legal test for duty to consult? Okay. Well, that's a good question for a lawyer. Um, we, we, we like those kinds of questions. Um, so at, at the risk of sounding like a lawyer, I'll just read you some a bit of law here. So the Supreme Court of Canada has said the duty to consult is triggered when a government has real or what they call constructive knowledge, that is that they either know or they should know that there is a, an indigenous claim to rights to some land or to some practice, usually hunting or fishing. So number one, the duty is triggered where the government knows or ought to know that there is in fact an indigenous claim to rights over land um, or practices upon that land. And number two, that the government is proposing conduct or a decision which may adversely or negatively impact that rights claim. So you've got a claim to rights to land, and we know that Indigenous peoples are claiming rights right across Canada, whether it's a right to title 
in lands, as we often see in British Columbia and the Maritimes, or it's a right, uh, a treaty right based on a treaty. And right across Canada, the numbered treaties or the treaties of peace and friendship in the Maritimes have substantive treaty rights attached to them. Um, or there may be um, Aboriginal rights outside of the treaty context to hunt or to fish. We see those in British Columbia and in, uh, and in the Maritimes in particular, Atlantic Canada. And so it might be a treaty right, it might be an Aboriginal right to hunt or fish, it might be an Aboriginal right to land, that these are our traditional lands. Um, in any one of those cases where there is such a claim to a right, and then the government is proposing to do something, build a dam, put in a pipeline, do some clear cutting, um, build a winter road, uh, put up some condominiums, develop a subdivision, um, develop an industrial project where that action is going to have an impact. Oh, that's going to limit the uh, hunting grounds of, uh, of, the, of the Cree people. Or, oh, that's going to you know, flood um, a sacred site of the Anishinaabe in, uh, in Ontario or whatever it is. If there is a, you know that there's going to be a negative impact and again, the government acting honorably has a duty to figure out if there's going to be a negative impact on indigenous, those indigenous rights claims. Um, then you have triggered the DTC, can I say that? The duty to consult. That's great. And, and there's something about the Crown conduct that fascinates me is that I, I think it was in Miccosoo Cree the court found that there is actually some crown conduct that is not subject to judicial review. Can you talk about some areas that might not, some crown actions that might not be subject to the duty to consult? Miccosoo Cree uh, in 2018 was an interesting case about the limits of the, of the duty to consult. Um, and in Miccosoo Cree, the, the court deals with a, the question of whether or not when governments enact legislation, in that case, um, some environmental legislation dealing with environmental protection and, and I think uh, various uh, freshwater, maybe species at risk. Um, the Miccosoo Cree said, well, that is government conduct that triggers the duty to consult because that has those legislative decisions, those new laws are going to have a negative impact on the exercise of our treaty rights. That was the argument. And Supreme Court of Canada said, no, that's not the kind of conduct we're talking about. They carved out, maybe it's an exception or maybe it's just a different category of crown conduct. They said, lawmaking is its own constitutionally protected activity. That's not subject to the duty to consult. If the laws once created interfere with indigenous rights, then section 35 applies and those rights will have to be justifiably infringed. Or if laws give rise to further decisions 
by the crown or by governments that may have a negative impact on on specific rights, then yes, that could claim that that could trigger the duty to consult. So let's imagine that the government passes a a law that decides or determines what the process is for selling uh, licenses to harvest timber, say. So the, the legislation deals with the harvesting of timber. Mikasu Cree says the government doesn't need to consult with indigenous peoples when it creates or drafts or enacts the law. That's the legislative process. But once it then uses that law to start selling timber licenses, then that might trigger the duty to consult over a particular forest or a particular set of lands or a particular set of trees if there is a negative impact on a particular indigenous nation. And so that's what the court's decision in Mikasukriya is. It said that there's a difference between making law on the one hand, not subject to the duty to consult, and taking actions under that law, administering the law that can and does trigger the duty to consult. Um, now let's shift focus to the actual content of the duty to consult. What does it actually entail? What does consultation mean? So the court has said in Haida Nation, the content of the duty to consult is itself flexible and determined by context. It is not a one-size-fit-all set of duties. So there's no rule book that says this is what the duty to consult is, and you just apply that rule book every time the duty is triggered. They didn't do that. The court said instead that the duties may change based on factors, and those factors are this. Factor number one, how strong is the claim to rights or title by the indigenous group? Is this a claim that is close to being proven? Have they got strong evidence in support of this claim that is as yet unproven in Canadian law? Or is this, you know, the first we've heard of this claim and there may be other indigenous groups that are contradicting that claim, let's say it's say to title and um, one indigenous nation is claiming, but so do a number of others, and maybe the evidence isn't yet there to, to know who's right or who's wrong. So we can think of the strength of the rights claim as existing on a spectrum from, okay, it you know, the claim exists, but we don't have a strong sense of, of whether or not it's going to ultimately bear out, all the way up to look, that claim hasn't yet been proven in a court of law, but let's be realistic. The Haida have got all of the uh, evidence. It's just a question of time before uh, they prove that uh, to Canadian judge, they don't need to prove to themselves, they know, but to a Canadian judge say um, that you know they have title to those lands. So that's factor number one. Factor number two is how negative an impact are we talking about? How devastating is the decision or the government action that we are contemplating? Is it a hydro line, let's say, a set of electrical wires that's gonna run over 
a, a hunting ground. And there's going to be a bit of disruption when those uh, poles go in and the lines are strung. But after that, you know, there's not really much that those that those poles are going to do in terms of, of having a negative impact on the migration of species or on the exercise of hunting rights. It's not zero because we've got to build the thing and we're going to have to clear a strip of forest to, to, string the, to string the lines through. So there's going to be some impact, but it's going to be relatively modest. All the way up to, we're going to clear cut that forest. And in that forest, you exercise your historic rights to hunt for deer. You've always done so. Deer feed your community. They've always fed your community. You use the skins for a variety of, 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 of cultural purposes. You use the meat to feed your families. And that's going to disappear because we're clear cutting those forests and the deer are going to go somewhere else. Um, so where are we on that spectrum of adverse impact? From, from modest and transitory, all the way up to effectively destroying the right itself. And you can imagine that we probably, in many cases, we're in the middle or we're shading to one side or to the other. That's um, factor number two. And so when we put those two factors together, how strong is the claim? How negative is the impact? We come up with a third spectrum, is this too many spectrums? Our third spectrum says, where do you fall then on the duty to consult line? And that too has a low point and a high point. At the low point is you've got to give notice, you've got to give information, I'm talking about the government here. The Crown has a duty, if they're consulting at the low end of the spectrum, to inform the Indigenous rights holders about what's going on. So let's imagine you have a relatively, uh, a, a rights claim to hunt that, you know, hasn't been proven, but certainly is, 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 is a possible claim, but that we're talking again about those hydro uh, lines and there's gonna be a, a seasonal impact on, on hunting probably in the, during the construction of them, but there should be no long-term impact based on the studies that the government has done. We're probably near the low end of the consultation spectrum. That is, the indigenous rights holders can't wake up one day and discover that there's hydropoles going through their hunting grounds. They should know about it. They should receive the studies that have been done to prove that the impact is going to be uh, basically, uh, there's gonna be no impact in the long term. And that communication has to go out um, in the languages that the indigenous peoples speak. If we're up north and English is not the first language or French of, uh, of a variety of, of community members. So there are obligations on the government to get out the message and communicate it clearly and honorably. But in a context in which there really is not going to be a long-term impact on that right, the court would say we're at the low end of the spectrum. Notice is required, information giving is required, but maybe not much more than that. Now let's move up the spectrum because now let's say we have, again, a particularly strong rights claim and the government action of building a dam is going to create flooding with a serious negative impact on 
the lands, traditional lands of the Laxol people and of the hunting and fishing within their territory. Okay, now, it's no longer appropriate that the government simply give you notice that we're about to build a dam. That's all very well and good, but the people of the Laxol First Nation don't want you to build that dam. They don't want to hear that they are having a dam erected um, in their territory that's going to ruin uh, the rights that they've held since time immemorial um, and is a sacred connection with their with their land and with their ancestors and with the the birds and animals that you know they've relied on for forever. So now we say, okay, uh, what is the obligation out of the duty to consult? Well, it's a lot more than give notice. It is now the court says to listen to concerns, provide avenues for feedback for indigenous uh, peoples and to possibly accommodate um, their interests. And if you fail to do those things, if you fail to inadequately conduct those consultations, then the project can be canceled, it can be stopped, or it can be halted until such consultations occur. And so as we go up that spectrum, then we increase the duties on government to take real substantive action in regards to indigenous uh, people. And as the court has repeatedly stressed, the duty to consult is a process. So the obligation is to engage in a meaningful process, not just box checking. But what does a process mean? It means actually be invested in listening to Indigenous peoples and their concerns and doing something about those concerns. So it sounds like the courts have gone out of their way to say, consult, accommodate. Do Indigenous communities have a veto power? Can they say, no, absolutely not? That is way too much of an infringement. Is there a veto power? So this, I think, is, is one of the great uh, questions. Um, and I think depending on the different lines of particular cases that you read, you might come to some different conclusions about that. So let me say that there are some moments in some of the cases dealing with consultation, where it would seem that at the very highest end of the spectrum, you get either right up to consent or, or at least very close to it, in the sense that let's imagine a, a title claim that is almost certainly about to be proven and that the government is proposing to turn their title lands into a uh, pay for parking. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, we're going to have a massive uh, parking lot over your title lands um, and there'll be no more use of those lands for any of the purposes for which Indigenous peoples may have intended. So you've got a, 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 a decision that's effectively going to destroy the notion of that right. Um, are you at the high end of consultation or are you at basically at consent where, where the Indigenous nation is going to have to agree? My own personal view is that, is that in that scenario, you can get to some scenarios where effectively an Indigenous nation has to consent to the use of their lands. Um, now, 
I will put a little asterisk here because remember that even if an indigenous nation has title to lands and has the right to consent, you know, is, is required to consent to any uses of those lands, the government can still justifiably infringe that title with a justified infringement under Section 35. So even where you say the, the need for consent exists, it's not an all-protected consent, at least in the way that the Supreme Court of Canada has conceived of infringing on Aboriginal title rights. Okay, so that's, that's my view, is that consent has to exist at the top end of that spectrum. There are, however, a number of lines from cases in which the court has said, Indigenous peoples do not have a veto. They use that language. They, there is no veto. What do they mean by that? Well, do they mean that consent is never required? I don't think so. I don't think that's what they mean when they say there's no veto. I think what they're saying is that Indigenous peoples don't have the ability to themselves abandon consultation. They don't have the ability to say, well, we don't care what your project is, we're never agreeing to it in, 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 in that sense. A veto, a kind of freestanding veto that an Indigenous group could exercise on any project for any reason at any time. I think the court has said that doesn't exist. Now, if you talk to some Indigenous nations, they'll say, well, the Supreme Court of Canada may say that that doesn't exist, but our laws tell us that that veto exists. Why? Because our law tells us that these are our lands and we will make decisions in relation to them that protect them from decisions by governments. Um, why? Because we have the sovereign authority to do that. So there is, I think, this difference of opinion that exists at the heart of Canadian constitutional law between the, the judicial conception of, of power at the level of, you know, no veto, you've got to participate in the process that we've set out versus Indigenous peoples who say, well, that's maybe what your law says. Our law in relation to our waters and lands says something very different. Um, and the court has not yet had to face, um, I think, that particular uh, conflict, um, but it's only a matter of time because that, that issue is not going away, not going away either. So in the court's view, consultation works because the Crown has to consult and potentially accommodate, and it's not a one-way ratchet because Indigenous peoples, they say, have to participate in good faith, they have to avoid sharp dealing. They can't withhold their uh, consent unreasonably. They, they have to also engage and put forward their concerns in good faith and respect the process, all of those things. Now, many Indigenous nations, are, I think, are rightfully uh, suspicious of some government processes. Um, and so, um, you know, it's you can't undo uh, a history of colonialism by ordering everyone to the table to act in good faith. There's a lot of historical experience that would say that, you know, good faith has been in short supply um, around many tables dealing with Indigenous peoples. So that's a challenge that uh, endures in Canada. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this first episode of our podcast series on the Duty to Consult Doctrine. I'm Liz England, here with my colleagues Tesha DeBlanco and Zachary G. Tune in next time for a conversation with Professor John Burroughs, who shares his thoughts on Indigenous law and how it relates to the Duty to Consult Doctrine. It will be available on the Centre for Constitutional Studies website at www.constitutionalstudies.ca. You can also stay current by following the Centre on Twitter. Just search for the Centre for Constitutional Studies.